Hello and welcome to another edition of the Narrative First Podcast, the weekly podcast where story is always king. I am your host, Jim Hull, the voice of Narrative First, and this is episode number nine, Batman vs. Superman vs. Deadpool. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for letting me stop by and talk a little bit about story structure and story theory and a little bit of story analysis. Uh, This week it'll be a quick one, as this is a four-day week here in America. Yesterday was 4th of July, and we love fireworks, and we love taking the day off, which means I have to do two days' worth of work in one day, which is what I'm doing today, so I'll try and make this one quick. You might notice a bit of a difference in the sound quality. I have upgraded to my closet, because apparently that will get rid of the echo. A listener who is a professional podcaster sent me some information on how to improve the sound quality, So in the next coming weeks, you should see a marked improvement, and hopefully the podcast will be a little bit more tolerable for you. I'll also be fixing the iTunes and RSS feeds for the podcast and for the site as well this week. I know some people would prefer to subscribe that way, and I know I would prefer them to subscribe any way that they want to, so I will be fixing that this week. So thank you for your patience in waiting for all that to be fixed up. Uh, There's been overwhelmingly great response to last week's podcast, Instead of the first couple of episodes where I would go over everything that I wrote the week before and basically just read it to you, uh, last week was the first week that I started to do kind of a rough draft of what I was thinking about talking about this week on the site and with clients and with everybody else. And so it got a great response from it, got great comments, was able to improve the articles that I actually write on the site. So I will definitely be going forward using that same approach. It certainly helped out with my analysis of Zootopia uh, you know, last week, if you were listening, I had trouble identifying through lines and I felt that it was broken. I still feel like the story limit doesn't work as well as it could have and that that could have been fixed. But uh, thanks to a listener who wrote in and suggested different through lines, I was actually able to find uh, the story form for the story and was actually able to write 3,000 plus words this weekend on the film, which you'll be able to find in the show notes. I'll link to it and you'll be able to read the analysis there. So once again, I really do appreciate all the feedback and comments and questions. If you would like to have a topic answered or you would like to ask me a question, um, feel free to write into narrativefirst.com slash contact. And then I'll also be setting up a voicemail where you can leave me a message and just ask whatever question you want. And it'll sound like people are actually calling into the show, like I'm a big professional radio broadcaster. This podcast format really helped out. Last week I wrote the first half of my Batman Begins analysis. Uh, When writers write the same main character, in reference to Christopher Nolan, who tends to write characters that uh, are in the same... Well, actually, most of his stories are written in the same place, which is the overall story concern. If you're familiar with Dramatica, it's in the upper left-hand corner, so where you find past, understanding, conceptualizing, and memories... So that's why in that article when I say he writes characters that are the same, he's basically explaining the same sort of thematics. So in Memento and Prestige and um, Batman Begins, the main characters have a concern of memories. And so those are the areas that that he explores over and over again. And then the second half of the analysis this week will be about when a story starts. Because a lot of people refer to the inciting incident, thanks to Sid Field, I believe, who brought that up. Although Sid, for some reason, said the story didn't start until when the first act turns into the second act, which is bizarre to me. Dramatica has a very specific explanation for when a story starts. 
and inciting incident actually means something completely different, which I will get into in that article. But suffice to say, the inciting incident of a story is when all four through lines kick in. So when you hear people say that the inciting incident of Star Wars is when Luke gets the message, that's because that's when the main character through line kicks in. When previously, everything was overall story. So in regards to that analysis of Zootopia, I did get a listener email, which let me bring it up here. And this is Dave, and he asks, Hey Jim, love the Zootopia analysis after I saw it a couple of weeks. I was dying to know when you were going to write one. Quick question. My instincts told me that Hops was steadfast, but obviously is changed. But then how do you explain Nick joining the police force? That sounds like he changed. So the answer to that question requires a little bit of uh, information. When it comes to the resolve of a subjective character as seen by Dramatica, it's more about whether or not they grow out of their resolve or into their resolve. So every subjective character changes. That's why they're considered a subjective character. If they don't change, you know, if they don't grow, then they're considered an objective character and they're just part of the overall story through line. So Princess Leia, the droids, Chewbacca, uh, Grand Moff Tarkin, those people that are just objective functions in the overall story, they don't change, and so they're considered objective characters. But subjective characters, like uh, Luke and Ben, and to a certain extent Han in the first one, there's you know a bit of a sub-story in there, they do grow over the course of a story. So, But in a, a definite pairing between two characters coming into conflict over a particular issue, one will have their resolve changed, and the other will remain steadfast. So why is that? Because a lot of people always ask, well, why can't you have both people change? Isn't that a more beautiful message? Well, if they both change, then you have a broken story. Uh, I can remember back on Over the Hedge, which was an animated film, I think 2006, from DreamWorks. Both principal characters, both RJ, the main characters, the Bruce Willis raccoon, and Vern, the Gary Shandling turtle, uh, change their resolves. Both of them flip to the other side. And what you end up with is a film that really doesn't mean anything and really doesn't say anything at all. So if you want an example of two characters flopping, you can see Over the Hedge. You can also check out Brave. Brave is another one where both characters change and it's a huge nightmare. In Zootopia, it is Hobbes whose resolve changes. And you can see that in her final speech. When I was a kid, I thought Zootopia was this perfect place where everyone got along and anyone could be anything. Turns out, real life is a little bit more complicated than a slogan on a bumper sticker. Real life is messy. We all have limitations. We all have mistakes, which means, hey, glass half full. We all have a lot in common. And the more we try to understand one another, the more exceptional each of us will be. Try to make the world a better place. Look inside yourself and recognize that change starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with all of us. So she basically tells us she's a changed character with this speech. I mean, that that's pretty obvious at the end when she says change starts with me. But beyond that, she also offers up a new theory on how the world works, which just so happens to be her main character's solution. So when you have a main character with a changed resolve, they change in the story form from their problem, which her problem was hunch, to the solution, which is theory. So this theory of how everything fits together that she's explaining at the end, that is what is overcoming her hunch before. So 
It may seem really weird, and even trying to explain it, it's kind of hard to explain why theory is the opposite of hunch. Uh, that might not seem intuitive to you, or maybe it does. If it does, then you're an amazing writer with super amazing gifted talents. But something like faith and disbelief, you can see how those are opposite, or pursuit and avoid, those are opposite, or support and oppose. But hunch and theory work just the same. So a main character who has a problem of hunch, who's always following that intuition, when they have a changed resolve, then they will use theory to overcome that hunch, which is exactly what Hops does in the film. So that's a really good indicator that she's the changed character if that main character solution comes into play. Nick, on the other hand, grows into his resolve. So sure, he might not be as cynical as he once was, but he still has that snarky, fun-with-prejudice sort of point of view. And you can see that in the debriefing where he jokes around with Chief Bogo about inspirational quotes, and you can see it when he calls out Hops for her bad driving. While he's warmer and fuzzier, he still has that unique point of view that he began the story with. So that's why we say he grows into his resolve. So he still has that same point of view, it's just not as negative. But that perspective that he has on the world is still there. And it makes sense, because he's, he's that same character, that lovable character that everybody will want to see in the sequel. So this is why it would be great if Dramatica would switch the main character resolve options from Change and Steadfast to changed and steadfast because every subjective character changes you know whenever you see that question I know when I first started out with Dramatica it was like well yeah every character changes and what does steadfast mean since then there have been tons of examples and lots of articles written on it and it probably makes more sense to you now but back then of course every character changes and this isn't to say that not every character changes it's just to say is there a resolve at the end of the story has it been changed or does it remain steadfast all it is is you're just comparing the end of the story to the beginning of the story. You're comparing their points of view. So when you talk about character arc, which, you know, that's what you get from film school and, and other screenwriting books or, or writing books, when you look at character arc, it's actually a mixture of both the main character resolve and the main character growth. And they're both two parts of that arc. And it's really cool because one is the state and one is the process. So, you know, if you know anything about the deep theory with Dramatica, uh, in, in any quad you have uh, a static or, or binary state of two items, right? And then the other one is more of a, a process, right? And so, like, if you look at past, present, future, and progress, right? So past and present are very static. You know, they're states. They're very obvious states, whereas progress and future, there's a flow to that. There's more of a process. So that actual, that same uh, relationship between two items in a quad exists between the main character resolve and the main character growth. So the resolve is that state part of the dynamic. It's a binary switch that compares the beginning of a story to the end of the story, the point of view of the main character. The growth is the analog part or the process part of the dynamic, a rolling waveform that ebbs and flows throughout the story, dictating whether or not a characteristic is dropped or gained on the way to the final resolve. So here you can see how Hops is the changed character and Nick is the steadfast character. They both grow, they're both subjective characters, and so they both have that process of growing, but it's that state that you're looking for beginning to end. You know, is it a complete 180 degree difference? You know, have they learned something? That's usually how what people classify it as. Uh, or are they still, you know, still seeing the world the way they always have, they just kind of either tempered it down a bit or increased it depending on which direction they head. So hopefully that answers the question about the main character resolve in Zootopia and once again I encourage 
everyone to send in questions or call in once I get that set up uh, if they have something they want to ask and I will do my best to answer those questions. Over the weekend, I went to go see Finding Dory, and my first impression is that there is no story. I mean, there is a story, but it did not have the same emotional heart and charm that the first one did. And again, I could be totally, completely wrong about this, just like I was with Zootopia. If you read the Zootopia analysis, you'll note that I start off talking about animation. Uh, I was an in-betweener slash assistant animator slash character animator for 20 years in the industry. I worked at Disney, I worked at DreamWorks, I uh, worked at Sony for a little bit, uh, worked pretty much everywhere, and I know pretty much everyone in the industry, or at least know of them. So when it comes to actually evaluating films, I I have that sort of personal opinion that I have to kind of put aside in order to give an objective analysis. And sometimes uh, it's easy, sometimes it's not so easy. So if anybody's out there and, and knows exactly where the through lines fall and they're familiar with Dramatica and they absolutely love the film, please write in and uh, I can spend another week correcting myself. But um, it's a little bit different than uh, than Zootopia because with Zootopia I knew the through lines were there. So I saw main character and influence character and relationship story and overall story. I just didn't know exactly where those through lines fell in the Dramatica table of story elements. And if you're not familiar with that, you can always download it at uh, dramatica.com slash downloads. I put it there right at the top. So it's this big impressive chart that basically shows all the different elements that would come into a complete story. And uh, I knew that there were through lines in Zootopia. It's pretty obvious who the main character is and who the influence character is and the relationship and all that stuff. But I wasn't sure exactly where those through lines fell in the Dramatica chart. Looking at Finding Dory, I'm not even sure that you have all the through lines. I think the intention was Dory was the main character and then the Ed O'Neill Sectopopus Octopus Hank, right? He's got seven not eight, um, is the closest thing to an influence character, but they really don't have any relationship through-line moments between them. There's the introduction, and there's a little bit when they're in a stroller, but I still didn't feel like it developed the nice way that it did in the first one between Marlin and uh, Dory. Uh, So I'm not even sure exactly where those through-lines are. I mean, he would definitely be considered the change character, um, and there is a bit of a sub-story with Marlin and Nemo. The really nice thing about the first movie, Find Nemo, is that you actually had uh, two story forms, right? Like, so you had the, the main one, which was between Marlin and Dory, and then you had the sub-story between Nemo and Gil when they were in the, the aquarium. So that one's not as complete as the other one, but you had two full... I mean, you had two story forms in there, uh, which both are available on Dramatica.com slash analysis slash Finding Nemo. You can always find anything just by doing analysis and then forward slash and then the film that you're looking for. Um, so you can see both analyses there. 
and finding Dory had the same kind of substory in there with Marlin and Nemo, but it wasn't too terribly interesting and didn't add a whole heck of a lot to the story. The nice thing about the substory in Finding Nemo is that it ties into the overall story solution at the end of the main story with Nemo, you know, finding his way out of the, the aquarium. But this substory between Marlin and Nemo just really didn't add much to the actual final solution. So I wasn't really sure what those through lines were, let alone where they fell. But, you know, uh, maybe after a couple of days it'll occur to me. And again, I could be totally wrong. Uh, the film was really funny and really entertaining. So just because it doesn't have a, you know, quote-unquote complete story form through Dramatica's eyes, uh, I can still enjoy it, you know. Uh, we'll be talking about Taken later. So I, I like Taken. It's fun. But, you know, it's not a complete story. So this could be the same sort of thing. It was really funny and really entertaining, but I just felt like it lacked the same sort of emotional connection that the first one had with its structure. The real gem, though, is Piper, the short that shows right before Finding Dory. Uh, if you go see Finding Dory over the summer, make sure you get there early enough to see Piper. While Dory lacks a bit when it comes to developing an influence character and a strong relationship story, Piper manages to hit all four in under six minutes, and it's really, really cool. When I was teaching story at CalArts, my students would always come up to me and say, well, we really loved you know, what you had to say, and it's really great and all, but this doesn't really apply to two-minute films. When you go to CalArts, your main project for the entire year is to make a two- to three-minute short, depending on what year you are. And so they would love you know, learning all this stuff about features and dramatica and everything, but they could never make the connection to their short-form film. Well, it's too bad I still don't teach there because now I have a perfect example. Piper tells the story of a hungry sandpiper who overcomes her fear of the ocean. Before too long, a hermit crab comes into her life and shows her a different approach to solving her problems. Armed with this new solution, the piper ends her hunger and the hunger of those in her flock, all while feeling great about her newfound confidence. I mean, that's a great logline for a feature if you could stretch it out, and it's a great logline for a short. In less than six minutes, director Alan Barilaro managed to include an overall story through line, a main character through line, an influence character through line, a relationship story through line, main character resolve, main character approach, main character problem solving style, story driver, story limit, story outcome, and story judgment. A seriously remarkable and commendable feat to be able to include all those in less than six minutes. But the most interesting part is the quad of episodic story elements that are at play within the narrative. Faced with the question above from my students, I would often tell them to just grab a quad of four elements from anywhere within the Dramatica table of story elements and write a story using them as guideposts for the narrative. So you can grab pursuit, avoid, control, and uncontrolled and make a story. You know, you have somebody who's pursuing something and they're feeling that they're being too controlled, so then they try and break free with uncontrolled, and then finally they realize they just need to avoid the situation altogether. That is a complete little dramatic unit. And if you have those four, four that work together in a quad, you can actually tell a small little story. So it's like a Calvin and Hobbes comic where you have four boxes, right? You have the potential is the first one. You have the resistance, which is the second one. You have the conflict, which is the third one. And then the last one is outcome. And any electricians out there will notice that these are the parts of an electric circuit. Potential resistance, current, and power, right? But because it's stories, we change current to conflict and power to outcome. 
So with Piper, you have a quad of elements that are found under the issue of strategy, which, if you think about it, works perfect for a story about coming up with a strategy for getting more food. And those elements are inaction, protection, reaction, and proaction. And you can go in any direction you want. It just so happens that they went in a more of an episodic direction. And they started with inaction. The potential for conflict begins with the Piper's inaction. She waits on the shore and lets Mama bring the food to her. That's a very inactive stance, right? And that sets up the potential for the conflict. The resistance to that potential happens when the Mama Bird forces the Baby Piper out into the open. The Baby Piper's reaction to the crashing waves finds her panicking and running for her life, only to end up back where she started, freezing and still hungry. Then the third part is the conflict, and that's when she meets the tiny little hermit crab. Observing these little guys and how they survive the onslaught of the waves, the Piper learns to bury herself in the sand as a means of protection. So we started with inaction, then we got reaction, and now we're learning protection. The waves rush over her, and with a gentle tap, the Piper opens her eyes to see her world in a brand new light. And then finally you have the resolution, which is why you need four signposts. So this is just like having four signposts in a complete story. You have that potential, you have that resistance, you have the current, and then you have the outcome. Finally, the outcome finds the little Piper rushing to and fro, bouncing between the adults as she turns up one food source after the other. Having changed her resolve, the Piper confidently and happily engages in proaction to satisfy both her hunger and the hunger of others. So all it was was six minutes to successfully communicate the bare bones of a story form. And it kind of makes you wonder why those who have 20 times that amount of time stumble about as if they have no idea what they're doing. So if you're struggling with the mechanism of your story, whether it be 120 minutes or 2 minutes, take a look at Pixar's Piper. The sophistication in both the message and the presentation is a sight to behold. Now if you notice, I was reading that for the most part. Uh, that's because that's what I ended up writing this morning, because uh, I was so excited about realizing that. Uh, if you want to, you can find it on the site. I'll leave it in the show notes. Uh, if you want to look that over and see how to use just a small little quad of elements to write a six-minute story. Before I get into Batman and Superman and Deadpool, I wanted to take time out to go over some theory. One of the really great things about Dramatica is that you can find confirmation of it in your own life. Chris Huntley, one of the co-creators of the Dramatica Theory of Story, often talks about the Native American idea of one, two, three, many. And if you notice, that's four items. And in Dramatica, it's based on the quad structure. So you have one, two, three, and many. And that last one is always a blended view, because that's how our minds work. That's how we actually solve problems. So listen in here as Chris explains how this blended view works. The thing that I, when Jim and I were talking a long time ago, and early on in what Mel and I were talking about, is the idea of the you know, Native Americans, when they were counting, they had the concept of one, two, three, many. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, you have, and that's the way our mind works. One, two, three, many. If you're going to prioritize your life, one, two, three, many. I always call it the many a bucket. That's why when my wife asked me how to do I slept with in college, I just say many. <laughs> <laughs> I just leave it at that. <laughs> no, but I mean, the whole point of that is, it's like if you're looking at your priorities, and you say, okay, I've got um, work, and I've got family, 
and I've got my career, and then everything else falls in the bucket. Now the problem is very usually people don't think about me. I and me, think about you. no, but me usually falls into the bucket, which is why people get into real crisis mode because it's almost impossible to put me in the bucket. It always tries to be one of the principles, if not the principle. And so when you are when you are putting the, the I trying to take care of me, it doesn't work either. Well, you don't have to be first, but you have to be one of the top three. One of the buckets. Because if you're in the bucket, then you're just as, you know, then you're constantly being prioritized with whatever else is in there, which is a rotating whatever is of most importance at the moment that's rotating. And you can swip, swap them in and out, but generally speaking, you tend not to. The ones that are the higher priority tend to, you need to keep them high for a while. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there can be things that dissolve, you know, the we can go away and so it's like well there goes the relationship so I'm not gonna put that high on or my job or I say look honey right now my career I've got it I've got to put this first for a period of time right at risk of you know big damage to the relationship but you know I mean if you're aware of that you're doing it and you don't lose sight of that that you've done that but that's that's the thing that is really important and that's that it's because we have that blended view. We cannot have all four. We can have four things, but the last one is always not the same. Right. It's always the where the paradox exists in any quad, because you have to stand someplace right. in order to see three. So you have there has to be a, pers a point of view, a perspective, and that's just sort of like okay, this is the, this is where. I can see these three things, and then there's everything else. Now on to the main event, Batman versus Superman. Okay, so I knew this was going to be a rough one. I had heard everybody's comments, and I knew that it was a rough going, and that it took a lot to get through the whole thing. But uh, I I like Batman. I like Ben Affleck as Batman. I think it's perfect because he's kind of a douchebag in real life, and Batman's always been a douchebag, so it was kind of nice to see that. I always liked Frank Miller's Dark Knight, and this looked like it was going to be a lot of the same, so I thought it would end the same way. Unfortunately, it wasn't. You could kind of tell with the soundtrack that it was going to be a rough going. It didn't have the same kind of catchy tunes that the first Superman had, and certainly not the same personality of the original Christopher Nolan films. The problem with Batman vs. Superman is melodrama, plain and simple. You have all these emotions going on. Anger, hurt, loneliness, pain, suffering. Oh, suffering. Lots and lots of suffering but neither of them is tied to the structure of a narrative. And that's the definition of melodrama. It's just emotions with no greater context. That's why it's so, uh, not nauseating, but so overwhelming And how you just, at the end, you're like, okay, I get it, please, just enough. They're just raw emotions that are heaped one on top of the other, scene after scene. So this is another great thing about Dramatica. It provides writers with the means 
to tie those heavy-handed emotions to an actual structure, to have them mean something more than the emotions that they actually are. So if you want anger, pain, and suffering to actually mean something, you can tie it to the narrative structure and actually say something about anger and say something about pain and either show how you can get past it or how maybe you can't get past it. It just depends on what you want to say, but actually have something to say about it. With Batman Begins, you have fear, right? There's an emotion, fear, but is the whole thing about, oh, I'm so afraid of everything? No, it's actually tied to an issue of personal suspicion. So Bruce himself fears that he is suspect for his parents' death. And then you also tie that in with the fear uh, that Ra's al Ghul is pushing with his issue of interdiction. That fear of not taking action to encourage a civilization's eventual collapse. So two sides of the coin there for fear. One personal and one kind of like extra personal personal. That are tied into the structure so they actually like work together. And they actually mean something. Uh, with the second film, The Dark Knight, you have paranoia tied to an issue of personal security. Where Bruce is worrying about doing more harm than good, Right? And then you have everyone else feeding off their own paranoia to feel their own personal understanding of how the world works. So here you have paranoia. One is more personal, like am I, am I doing more harm than I am good trying to protect everyone? And then everybody else who feels like they have their own, you know, enlightened view of the world and how things are supposed to be done. Those two work together to actually say something more than just paranoia. But with Batman vs. Superman, you just have anger and feelings of revenge and more anger and nightmares and sadness and more nightmares and a longing for a father figure and finally even more anger to the point where none of it means anything and you feel sorry for Ben Affleck with that YouTube video <laughs> where he's thinking about uh, the film. So it's a punishing, brutal two and a half hours plus that leaves you having felt a lot but not really understanding why you felt all those things. And what I want to do this week is contrast that with Deadpool, right? Which I thought for sure would be a great counterbalance to Batman vs. Superman. In fact, I convinced my girlfriend that she had to watch Deadpool last night so that I could actually do a podcast this morning about Batman vs. Superman vs. Deadpool because I thought for sure Deadpool would have an actual story and it would be great to kind of show how Deadpool is better than Batman vs. Superman. Unfortunately, it didn't have a story, but it's not as bad as Batman vs. Superman, and why? And the key is that it wasn't melodramatic. So it's entertaining and really funny in parts, but it too lacks any noticeable structure to the storytelling. Its saving grace is that it doesn't dive into melodrama the way that Batman vs. Superman does. It doesn't take itself seriously, and that's its strength. So you can get away without having a story because you're not taking yourself so seriously. So another key aspect of melodrama is that you heap all these emotions on and you try and make it this really serious thing, but if you're actually not saying something, it's going to really feel awful. Whereas something with Deadpool, you're not really trying to say something, but you're really not trying to say something. You're just trying to have a good time. So the lack of narrative in Deadpool is light and fluffy and fun to watch, but it really doesn't mean anything. And it's funny because they make a little snide remark towards Taken uh, with Liam Neeson in the film, and Deadpool's basically the same structural setup as a Taken film, right? You have a strong and highly entertaining overall story through line, a little bit of a main character through line, maybe a little bit more than that, 
and then absolutely no influence character through line and absolutely no relationship story through line. So the result is a massively fun roller coaster ride with absolutely no heart. So you could basically go to Six Flags and get the same kind of entertainment. But only if you bring a friend who's as funny as Ryan Reynolds is in Deadpool. And that's a pretty fair assessment for Deadpool. If you watched it, you would tell a friend, oh, it was really fun. You know, there wasn't much to it, but, you know, it's funny. And and that's the, the thing. There's a, a structural reason for why you said that. Because there is that overall story through line, and there is a bit of a main character. But there is no real heart there. There's no challenge to the way he goes about seeing things. There's no growth in character there. Um, it could have been so much more, but it was successful in its own right because it, it didn't take itself so seriously. So that's it for this week's podcast for Narrative First. Uh, it actually went longer than I thought it would. Hopefully the sound quality is much improved here. If you have any questions or comments, please send them my way, narrativefirst.com contact. Make sure you look out for the second half of that Batman Begins analysis this week, and I will talk to you next week.